0: Welcome everyone to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. I'm delighted to be joined today by Giles Wilkes, who is a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, and very importantly for what we're going to be talking about today, he was an advisor to Theresa May on industrial and economic policy, and prior to that, an advisor to Vince Cable on energy policy, among other things. I'm also joined by Stuart Adam, who is a Senior Economist at the IFS, who knows more possibly than anyone else in the country, about tax and welfare policy. And the two things that bring Giles and Stuart together today is for us to be looking at some aspects of the current cost of living crisis, as it's been called, and in particular, what's been happening to energy prices, and on what government might do to mitigate some of the consequences for households. Now, obviously, there is a lot more going on in terms of that cost of living crisis than just what's happening to energy prices. All sorts of other prices are rising as well. And of course, we've got some pretty chunky tax rises coming in in April. But let's start with this issue of what's happening to the costs of our gas and electricity. Giles, perhaps you could start just by giving us a sense of scale I and mean, how much are energy bills rising and how does that relate to experience over the last you know, many years?
1: Well, a a great place to start, Paul, and thanks for having me on here. Um, Now, the way we normally try to understand this is to translate this into ordinary household budgets, which is something the IFS is obviously an expert in doing. And the typical figure we're used to discussing is that the typical household spends about £1,100, £1,200 per year on their energy, split roughly 50-50 between gas for their heating and electricity for heating and everything else. And this goes up and down all the time, depending on the the wholesale price of gas, mostly, because that's one of the biggest components, both in the heating part, but also in generating electricity. Now, it would normally vary between, I don't know, £1,100 and £1,300. And since we brought in the price cap at the beginning of 2019, that's a calculation off Gen would look at quite carefully and move it around £50 would be a big deal. I say all of that as context, because What's been widely expected is that the next time Offgem has to make this calculation, that price will have to move from around 1300 to 1800 £1,900, pounds, a gigantic increase. And for some people, I like to make this point because I include myself amongst these, it's going to be a lot more because previously they weren't on the price cap. They might have been on a, a favourable teaser rate that encouraged them to join a, a seemingly good value energy company. And so they're first going to rise to a normal price and then to one of these higher capped prices. So you might see some people seeing 60, 70, 80% increases in their energy bills, which is going to be unprecedented. Those are
0: quite extraordinary numbers. And it'd be good to unpack some of what you said immediately we get into the complexity of the energy market. I think I saw something that you wrote, which in numbers that I also understand suggested that households might go from spending about 30 billion a year on their energy bills to something like 40 billion a year on their energy bills. But you went through a series of issues there in terms of how energy bills work. Can, can, can you just explain this price cap mechanism? A, a lot of commentary has been focused on that. It's something which um, implies almost that the government is setting energy bills and some people even blamed it for the increases in bills. So it just tell us a little bit about what that cap is, how it works, and why we're expecting the big increase in in, in April.
1: Well, um, great question. I mean, the punchline is the energy cap is going up, but it's not because of the energy cap that bills are going up. But people will see the government, in, in a sense, Ofgem, the regulator for the government, putting up that cap and will naturally blame it. So it's a good question to ask and to bring some clarity to. Now, it looks very simple to a household. You just turn off on or off your gas or electricity, it comes out. The price itself is made up of lots of different chunks. And some of them are fixed costs that really don't vary very much month on month or year on year, such as the network costs for all the pipes and wires out there, getting it from the generator to your household. the The cost we pay for extra social obligations like lowering the bills for some of the less well-off. And I think Stuart will be a better place to talk about that. And then some of them are slightly more variable, like how much it costs to run the energy company. And then there's the highly variable part, which is the wholesale price of electricity or gas. And that is set essentially on an open market out there with all sorts of different generators, all sorts of different sources of gas. And that's the one that can move Greatly. And that's the thing that's moved enormously over the last six months or so. So Ofgem, by the way, has an excellent explainer on its website, you can go there and you can see it broken down in nice, neat um, bar charts. But essentially, what we've seen is the component of that that comes from wholesale prices, according to some estimates now, is expected to go from around £500 pounds of that cost, of that £1,300 pound cost is going to be rise to 990 is what people think at Carbon Brief, for think tank, and that might even rise further to £1,200. Pounds. So the major driver of the increase in costs is the increase in wholesale prices. And those wholesale prices for nearly every country in the world are something they can't control. They come from open market in gas and hence the electricity price. So A slightly complicated answer for you there, but most of the cost is something that isn't about directly policy. Okay, so this isn't
0: the fault of government for layering too many costs onto us or over-regulating or getting the price cap wrong. It's because gas prices have gone up internationally.
1: Can we push back one step further? Why have gas prices gone up such an extraordinary amount? That's a good question. And, and uh, I would say there are elements of the policy side that have contributed to it, but it's more in the tens of pounds than the hundreds of pounds. I should make that clarification and, and fess up to a particular part later. But why why has the gas price gone up so much? Well, some of this is Covid related. Um, gas demand was crushed by the original phases of the pandemic, and then rebounds really quickly after low periods of maintenance, low amounts of storage. So you see a really fast snapback, like we've seen in quite a lot of markets, but more extreme through the gas market. Others are sheer bad luck, people talking about the perfect storm. Well, in fact, Europe, which is increasingly dependent on wind, has had a less windy summer, which has meant that the wind turbines haven't been providing as much of the energy through the summer, which means the gas ter- the gas storages have been hit harder. So the gas supplies are less full. Then there's demand from Asia, which has also rebounded quite hard and is a big manufacturing hub. But also the UK has particular vulnerabilities. In particular, we have a pretty poor housing stock. We have very leaky, uninsulated houses compared to the typical ones in Europe in particular. And we use a lot of gas for central heating, which for a long time was a boon when we had the North Sea just pumping it straight to us. But now it's become a bit of a vulnerability. So all of these things have come together. And I suppose you've also finally got the geopolitical factor: Russia not pouring gas into the system for reasons that a lot of people suspect is political and diplomatic rather than purely economical. So that all sounds
0: quite concerning, but how much of that is going to continue into the medium run? Because that really matters for actually how government should respond to this. Is this a is this a one-off spike which will will get prices going back to pre-pandemic levels fairly quickly? Is this a spike that will stay there? Or are we going to continue to see even further increases? I mean, I know no one can foresee the future, but uh, what what's the what's the consensus on whether this is a long-term increase or whether we'll see uh, a fallback relatively soon.
1: Well, I'd first like to amplify your caveat there that nobody can easily predict a massive and relatively liquid market. Otherwise, you could make a lot of money and there are energy traders all trying to guess this. I think futures prices, uh, prices where you can actually get in advance a fixed price, suggest it's not going to come down as fast. And um, some of the market inflation that we've seen right now will just return the moment sort of COVID has passed through the system people don't think that it's going to necessarily return that, that quickly. And it takes a long time to rebuild those stocks and so forth. So there might be considerable persistence, I think is one of the is 12 months, 18 months. But beyond that, it's really hard to tell. I mean, commodity markets are by their nature very volatile and cyclical, because people see a really high price, they invest in getting a lot more supply, that supply takes months or years to come on. And by the time it does, there's a glut. And then it It goes down again. You might remember this over the financial crisis. We saw oil up to 147 and then down to 30, then back up to 110 around the Arab Spring and fell down to 30 again after a collapse in 2016. They're very volatile. So you'd be a very brave man to put a lot of money on saying exactly where they're going. But not straight back down would be my most confident assessment.
0: Right. And that's, uh, as we'll come on to in a minute, that really matters for how we Respond to it, but I'm very interested in going back to your the, the your, your teaser just now. Yes. You said that there's a, you 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 want to you want to fess up to something. Well, well, that, now is your chance.
1: On IFS zooms in, make your confession. I will I will confess here because the energy bill is a very complicated thing with lots of charges that are put on existing customers. So some of these are like added amounts that energy companies can do things like insulate your house and then charge it to the general bill payer or put up wind turbines that cost more than the current market price, at least that was the case at the time, and then charge it to the bill payer. Now, a charge that's coming on in the next six to eight months is the cost of a lot of these companies that have gone bust in the last six to 12 months. And those companies have gone bust owing money to the system for various parts of this energy bill stack, like renewables obligations, we call them. And that price, which is listed in this excellent material from Carbon Brief as other costs is due to rise from just glancing at it from around 530 to 670 pounds, which is quite a significant amount. Now, these are costs that other bill payers were being led off earlier. So I'm not sure it's a net cost to the system, but it is going to be something that all of the people who are just on the same energy supply the whole way now have to bear, which is why it is fair to criticise the system of regulation for allowing so much failure, because when failure happens... The rest of the market is left carrying the can. So that is going to be a significant part of the price rise coming up. But it's nothing like the whole of it. It's mostly the wholesale gas price. Yeah, so
0: lots of companies entered the market, didn't have enough money to see their way through this kind of scale of increase. They have left leaving debts and everyone else has to pick that up. Just, just finally, finally, for now, some people have referred to this as the first net zero crisis, as if this is somehow very closely related to policies to increase green uh, electricity production. Is this the first net zero crisis or is this just a, as it were, a traditional spike in um, commodity prices kind of crisis?
1: I would say it's impossible for the discussion of net zero to escape this issue, partly because people will be looking very closely at everything that's part of the energy price bill. And some of it will have been past renewables costs. But it's not those past renewables costs that have suddenly shot up. And you could argue that had we gone even further and faster on renewables, the fixed prices we were agreeing for wind in particular would now look like an astonishing bargain. So you can't say, if only we hadn't gone so fast on net zero, we'd be sitting pretty, because we'd have been buying more gas, and it's gas that's got extremely expensive. However, you could see people saying, this has shown us some of the risks of the instability you get through net zero. Wind is intermittent. We had that quiet summer through Europe, which meant that we needed more backup storage. So it means we have to think very carefully about how we do net zero to make sure we don't introduce more volatility into the system, which is going to be a challenge. But ultimately, a more decarbonized electricity system ought to end up being more stable. It will be a combination of gas and for some of the storage, but mostly wind, solar. Batteries, hydro and so forth, and that is actually a more stable mix long term so I don't think it says net zero is a mistake, but certainly there are challenges in redesigning the system as we move forward
0: and, and one of those challenges I guess that that worries some people is in respect of the cost is that we can have lots and lots of wind and solar and so on but because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine we're also going to we're also going to need to sort of have double the amount of infrastructure because we're going to need gas as well to come on when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining? I mean, is, that, is that a big part of
1: future costs? Well, I mean, it's part of the energy reform that set up all of this. The, the I think it was the 2013 energy market reform. They set up something called the capacity market, which meant that you pay gas producers to have idle capacity for those weird spikes that happen. And that's all part of the policy cost. So in theory, you can set up a big, basically an insurance payment to have all of this idle plant sitting by. And it might be gas or it might be demand management or it might be batteries or it might be hydroelectric plants. So in theory, the system can cope with this. Obviously, the more wind you get and the more of that potential intermittency, the more you're going to need that insurance. But in theory, we can deal with it via these insurance payments. So I don't think it's an insuperable um, obstacle to overcome.
0: That's good to hear. Let's move on from there to the question of what government can do about it. I mean, first of all, Stuart, we've heard quite a lot about the so-called cost of living crisis. Now, part of that, of course, is the uh, increase in energy prices. But what what else is going on at the moment, which is leading people to worry that essentially people's standard of living is is likely to fall this year?
2: Well, I think there are a number of things going on. So first of all, energy prices aren't the only price that's rising. Overall, inflation is now expected to be much higher than was expected even a few months ago, let alone than we used to over the past few years. The Bank of England is currently expecting annual inflation to reach 6% in April. And these price rises aren't even telling the full story of the difficulties of, of getting hold of things, because Ongoing disruptions to supply chains and so on means that actually it still can be quite hard and involve delays buying some things at all. Now, at the same time as you've got price rises and supply chain difficulties, um, you have wages not growing particularly quickly and you have increased taxes on those wages due to come in in April. And there are two big ones there. You've got effectively a national insurance increase and what will will become the health and social care levy. And then you've got a freezing of tax thresholds, uh, including the tax-free allowances in income tax and so on, which, of course, is uh, freezing those is a much bigger deal when inflation is high than when inflation is lower, as it was expected to be even less than a year ago when the Chancellor announced these things. So you've got a combination of all of those things. You've got low wage growth, you've got higher taxes, and you've got rising prices.
0: Well, that's a pretty nasty um, set of things to be coming in together. I mean, one obvious thing that lots of people have suggested to the government is, well, you're in control of these tax rises. Why not not do them? Either get rid of them altogether or delay them until this particular crisis is passed. I mean, why not do that?
2: Well, I think there are two main arguments against that. One is you know, the, the sheer cost of this. The government's not bringing in the health and social care levy because it wants to raise taxes. It wants to do it because it needs money and particularly needs money. In this case, it's designed to deal with um, the NHS backlogs in particular in, in, in initially and increasingly over time to deal with provision of, of social care so certainly doing this on a permanent basis would just be very expensive about 12 billion pounds a year the government's expecting to get from this and that's not something that can very easily be replaced delaying it for a year uh, in principle a one-off hit to the public finances like that wouldn't be the end of the world. But of course, once you delay these things, the question is how likely is it you would really be able to bring them in later, particularly as, as you know the next general election gets closer and closer. So that's one kind of argument against doing that is, is the cost or the difficulty of delay. The other issue is that as a way of dealing with price rises in particular and energy price rises, most of all, it's just not terribly well targeted these tax rises are basically bigger for for those people that earn more and those people who earn below the national insurance threshold or those people whose income comes from other sources aren't due to get a tax rise at all. And so as a way of helping people deal with rises in energy bills, it's just not very well targeted at doing that.
0: It seems sort of fairly obvious in a sense how you might help people on the lowest incomes, people who are out of work and on benefits, you might just increase their benefits. But what can you do to, well, first of all, would that be a reasonable response? But secondly, what can you do for people on modest earnings, but who are outside of the benefit system without spending an absolute arm and a leg?
2: Yes, I think that's the difficulty. And there's clearly a trade-off between how many people you want to help and how much you want to help them. And how much is going to cost you? Because clearly trying to protect everyone who's affected by energy price rises, trying to protect them all completely would be phenomenally expensive. We don't know quite how much energy bills are going to rise uh, in April and the months that follow. But as you were discussing with Giles, you could be thinking in the order of £500 or more per household. So again, maybe 10, 15 billion pounds, even more per year for the government. So trying to cover all of that would be extremely expensive. So you could, to some extent, you know, you, you could try and cushion the blow a bit for everyone. or You could try and cushion the blow a lot for the poorest households. And so if you wanted to focus on the poorest households, then yes, increasing benefit rates, presumably on a temporary basis, though it wouldn't have to be, is the obvious way of doing that. Is it what would be perfectly feasible? It would not be dissimilar to expanding the warm homes discount that already exists in energy bills would be a way of doing it through energy bills. The way that works at the moment is a bit complicated and unsatisfactory. You need to really transform it quite a lot in order to do this. And that that's what the Labour Party is proposing to do in this space, but but doing it either through benefits or through something like a much-expanded warm homes discount would be a way to target help at low-income households. If you wanted to do it more broadly, one widespread suggestion, again, this is now Labour Party's policy, is to get rid of VAT on domestic fuel, Um, which is already at a reduced rate of 5%. You could set that to zero. That has some quite serious downsides that uh, we might come back to. You could try and deal with it directly through reducing energy bills through things like the price cap that Giles was talking about. Or you could do something of a kind that we haven't done before. So you could just, for example, send every household a check for, you know, £200 in the post. Or Again, you could do that through energy bills if you wanted to, so fund all suppliers to take £100, £300, whatever it might be, per year off everybody's energy bills. And we don't currently have mechanisms set up that do that, but it might be possible to set them up. And so there's a whole range of things that you could do here, and then it starts to come back to exactly what you're trying to do and who you want to target with these things.
0: Yeah, and uh, I mean, obviously, from the list of things that you went through there, Stuart, really quite difficult to do something, um, certainly using our traditional mechanisms for for the bulk of the population. But I, I mean, just, just thinking about that, Giles, on uh, what Stuart was saying about energy bills, what we've heard, I think, various suggestions that maybe the government could ask energy companies to keep their bills down this year by lending them some money and then um, and then evening out uh, the price of bills over time. Is, is that is that a genuinely plausible thing, given the way the market
1: works? Um, I was discussing this with a couple of my friends who've been close to the government in the past about this. I think it's so hard to design correctly without being gamed. And I say this the day after the Lord's uh, Minister has resigned because of the amount of fraud from the coronavirus bounce-back loan scheme. Now... You could think immediately of ways that this might be gained. I mean, suppose the system is you let off the high wholesale prices when they're high, but then you've got to pay them back when you go low. Well, what's going to ensure that the companies will hang around to be paying them back? I mean, how are you going to ensure that you're going to get it all back? And in a sense, the government's taking a large gamble against future energy prices. It's saying to the market, "We're going to take that risk off you," which a is a bad idea for efficiency. You want the market to be thinking hard about how to get good sources of supply and so forth but b anything that offers a free option to anyone who's remotely capitalist is going to there's going to be the risk of some kind of abuse so normally that means regulate it really tightly design it really tightly and you can see what happens when you don't have the time to do that with the the bounce back loan scheme you have billions of fraud so i just could see it going horribly wrong if they tried to rush that out as well as the fact that it would distort the market terribly So um, I'm sure they're thinking about it, but my goodness, it's hard to get that kind of policy right. It took months to design the price cap correctly, and even that had a lot of criticism. How you design a price cap and payback system for the whole wholesale market? Good luck.
0: Well, that's not very encouraging. I mean, is there anything that you think the Chancellor could do, which is within uh, sort of setting aside everything in the tax and benefit arena, Is there anything that he could do um, with regard to energy regulation or um, subsidizing energy companies or or anything in the short run? He's got a spring statement in six weeks or so. He can't stand up and say nothing, I don't think, in the face of all this. Is there anything that he could do in terms of um, regulation, price caps, loans to companies, anything
1: like that? Well, I can only offer general principles as opposed to um, as a, a total answer, because as you said at the beginning, I mean, we as a country are importing a certain huge amount of gas. I think it's going to come to tens of billions of pounds. And that, that bill has gone up. And it's a question of how you share it around the place. Now, some of the principles I would offer is fuel poverty is an extremely irritating thing for people of middle and higher incomes. You know, you suddenly don't have some money that you wanted to have, and you're going to be angry with the government, no doubt. But it's not fatal. For people who are really struggling to pay their bills, the real risk is they don't use the energy they need to use, and they really suffer, or they they don't heat their homes. And so it has to be progressive, even if it's not politically popular. So I, I do think that the sorts of ideas that Stuart was discussing there have got to be the sort of place to go. Politically, it has to be visible in that if the bill goes up by £600 and it would have gone up by £800, nobody's saying thank you, which is why they're very attracted to things with cheques with Rishi's name all over it and copious use of Instagram. That's bound to be discussed. So they're going to want to do things like I mean, I've seen a good suggestion from a colleague of mine called Josh Buckland, who used to work on energy policy. You know, what about some of that national insurance rise that they're arguing about so much? Why don't you say some of that should go towards this? Because we know you're hurting. But really, there isn't, there can't be an easy way around it. And the worst mistake the Treasury hates the most, which I'm sure you remember from you've you've spent time in the Treasury, helping the capitalists who've made the mistakes as opposed to the end consumers, is the worst mistake they think you can make. If you just make shareholders happy you haven't dealt with the problem at all. So they're going to want to think, ultimately, how do you get the end user to benefit from our lodges
0: Well, that's an extremely good principle. Um, Stuart, you're, um, you know, the, the day after the spring statement, we're going to be analysing it and telling the world what's good and bad about it. What response to this, assuming there is a response, would you be applauding on the day after if, if Mr Sunak announce something um, on the day of the spring
2: statement? I think it's it's a difficult thing to get right and to say, yes, perfect, he found the solution to. I think I would start off by saying, yes, let's, let's make sure that low-income households are protected as far as possible, at least to some degree. Um, and one thing that we could look at there is that, in a way, benefit rates are supposed to be protected against inflation because benefit rates go up each year in line with inflation. Now, the trouble is, at the moment, they go up in line with a lagged measure of inflation. So they're due to go up in April in line with what inflation was in the year up to last September, which is about 3%, 3 3.1%, in fact. But by April, with the, the inflation to the year to April, we expect to be 6%. And so, actually, benefits aren't going up quickly enough. I mean, that, it would catch up a year later, but in the short term, benefits aren't keeping up with the rate at which prices are rising. So one thing the Chancellor could do is just as a short term measure, announce a temporary increase to benefits, maybe the that extra 3% to make up the difference between the, the amount they're going up and the round, that the overall prices are going up. Actually, what I think would be rather better is if he changed the way that benefits were uprated permanently so that they always go up by a more recent measure of inflation so that they would go up by 6% this April rather than going up by 3.1%. But then each year they went up in line with a more up-to-date measure of inflation, either just you know the latest we've got by April or what inflation is forecast to be over the coming year. So I think that would be my... my Starting point for where I would like to see some help for households because it, it's a reform that makes the system more rational anyway.
0: And I think from what you said previously, if the political pressure, which I think it is, is not just to help those on the lowest income but to help people on middle incomes, that's a much harder thing to think about. And you know, you might almost be in the world of selecting households to send cheques to because we just don't really have the capacity to focus. Reduce taxes or increase benefits on, for example, someone earning thirty thousand a year, or who happens to be living in a particularly expensive house to heat.
2: Yes, I think that's right. And actually, you know, again, administration permitting, I think there are worse things that you could do than just send a check to every household or to, you know, households in certain categories that you can identify uh, relatively straightforwardly. The other main option in this space is is. that that reduction in VAT from 5% to zero. I do worry about that. Um, I I particularly worry about whether you could really do that on a temporary basis. But I think think it's important here to highlight a trade-off that I'm I'm not sure has has been noticed enough with this so far, which is as well as thinking about, do you want to help everyone or focus it on, on the poorest? Do you want to target support on those who have higher energy bills, perhaps because they live in, you know, draftier houses, or whatever it may be, because things like a cheque for every household or even an increase in benefit rates don't provide more support to those whose bills go up more. Um, And if you think of, say, poorer households, so for households in the lowest income 10% of the population on average gas bills are about four or five percent of their budgets but for about a tenth of that poorest tenth of of, of households gas bills are over 12 percent of their budget not four or five percent and so some low-income households are going to face much bigger rises in energy prices and well in energy bills than others and something like a uniform increase in benefit rates isn't really going to get at that. The only way, really, that you can provide more help to those whose bills go up more is by reducing the price of energy, whether you do that directly through uh, the price cap or some other measure in the energy market, or by reducing the VAT rate. But the trade-off there is that if you're reducing the price of energy you're going to be encouraging people to use more of the stuff. And given that we're trying to get to net zero and all the rest of it, particularly over the long term, encouraging people to use more energy doesn't sound like uh, something that we want to be doing. And so it's very difficult both to provide more support to those whose bills are going up most, as opposed to the poorest households who can least cope with bill increases, and also to avoid providing a bigger subsidy for burning gas uh, at home than we already do.
1: I was just going to say, and this is not just to be sycophantic to the IFS, I still remember an excellent report you guys did in 2013, where you analysed all of the different carbon prices and carbon taxes in in the economy, and how you showed that thanks to the lower VAT on household bills, it's got a negative carbon price. In other words, it's actually encouraging people to do the opposite. So... Cutting it to zero, as Stuart says, would make a bad problem worse from the point of view of climate.
2: Yes, and just just to add to that, we actually updated that work last year and found it is still the case that actually domestic use of gas is subsidised at the moment relative to other consumption. And in the long run, it's not a popular time to say it, in the long run, I would like to see the VAT rate on domestic energy go up rather than go down. But the long run solutions there also need to be about helping households to uh, move away from burning fossil fuels by improving energy efficiency, moving over to electric heat pumps and things like that. And there's a discussion to be had as to whether the policies the government has in place to do that kind of thing are enough. I know, frankly, at the moment, I think that they're they're not. They are doing some things, but they're a bit patchy and not entirely effective. So I think there is a longer term questionnaire where I would like to see the taxes on household use of energy actually be higher, but with more help for households to reduce their energy consumption. But nothing, I mean, we're not going to get big moves towards insulation and towards heat pumps by April. And so, like it or not, there is a big crisis for household budgets coming down the road in a matter of weeks that the government really does need to do something about in the short term.
0: Well, that's probably a good place to end, a crisis coming down the road in a matter of weeks, and the government needs to do something about it. But as we've discussed, not easy to determine exactly what it should do beyond, I think we would all agree, compensating those on the lowest incomes for what inflation actually is, rather than what it was six months or so ago. Uh, I think as Giles has told us, what's happening in the short run really is all about what's happening on international energy markets. Our bills are a bit higher than they would have been had we Not been going towards net zero, but that's not really at all what's driving this big increase at this this moment in time. Lots of things to sort out on energy policy, both in the short run and the long run. And almost certainly we need to keep those two separate. What might be right for the short run might not be right for the long run, but we can't forget what we need to do over the longer term. We'll wait and see what Mr. Sunak or his boss or Fazi Kwarteng perhaps comes up with over the next month. Or two, I think it's unlikely they will come up with nothing given the scale of the public concern about this, but the chances to come up with something badly designed are pretty high. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on that. I'm sure Giles will be uh, keeping an eye on that and continuing to comment as well. But for now, thank you very much indeed for listening to us on the IFS Zooms In. Do keep well and we will be with you again in a couple of weeks.